With all the complaining that goes on in the world, you'd think that people actually enjoy being miserable. They do it. It's like a bad habit. It's like they're obsessed with complaining. But the good news is the thing that I recently found out, we're actually wired to negativity. It's not our fault. Well, it's a little our fault, but it's not quite fully our fault because evolutionarily, that actually kept us safe to be negative and to be on alert. But now we don't need that. We don't need it in the same way. And thanks to science and neuroplasticity and mindfulness and other techniques, you can actually get over that misery and enjoy a great, happy life. I'm talking to Dr. Shauna Shapiro in just a couple minutes about how to overcome that. She's written a great new book. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. And hey, do me a favor at the end, rate and review this. Give us a great rating because you're going to be so upbeat when you're done. And share this podcast. Let other people know about it. Thanks so much. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to clinical psychologist, author, and internationally recognized expert on mindfulness and self-compassion, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is a professor at Santa Clara University and has published over 150 papers and has just completed her third book, but may best be known by many for her TEDx talk, which is entitled The Power of Mindfulness, which has had nearly 1.5 million views. Actually, 1.5 million and one because I watched it, or a whole bunch of times because I watched it numerous times now. (laughs) While while mindfulness may seem like touchy-feely stuff to some, Dr. Shapiro has documented the scientific findings that demonstrate the very real health benefits of this practice. Her latest book, Good Morning, I Love You, provides a specific roadmap to help anyone rewire their brain for calm, clarity, and joy. All three of Dr. Shapiro's books are available at Amazon or wherever your books are sold. And you can learn more about her and all of her work at drshawnashapiro.com. So welcome, Shauna. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. And the TEDx talk, truly, I did I did bump your views quite a bit because I watched it. I mean, I watched it before we, we ever even talked the first time about having you on. And it was just so great. So I said, well, come on along and let's talk about this. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Now, meanwhile, though, I don't like talking about what everybody else talks about because it's not just about mindfulness because everyone talks about mindfulness. But when you and I were talking, there's a really important aspect of life. And it pains me that we're living like bathed in negativity and that people mm. seem to be, I'm going to use the word addicted to negativity. No matter what it is, the glass is half empty instead of half full. They're constantly criticizing. They're constantly judging. But you said that actually there's a reason for that and that there's yes. actually a way around it. So tell me about this. That like Why, why are we all so darn miserable? <laughs> well, there's something called the negativity bias, and this has evolved um, and was really important evolutionarily because it's what helped us survive. And so the negativity bias is our tendency to look for the negative, to look for the fearful, to kind of scan our environments for danger. And this made sense. You know, we we looked for where the saber-toothed tigers were and we made sure not to go there and we found the poison plants and we made sure not to eat them. And we're descended from ancestors who were relatively anxious and looking for the negative. And so what's happened is we've really skewed our perception to be scanning for the negative. And one of the things that I think is so important and and so helpful in mindfulness is to help us balance that and to help us start to train the mind to look for the beautiful, to look for the good not in a Pollyannish kind of way, but in a way where we start to see clearly and we don't get so lost or consumed by what's not working. Well, and I love the fact that, you know, because I, of course, being a hypersensitive, hyper-perfectionist, self-critical person, think that I'm just doomed. (laughs) Like, why am I so negative? Why am I so hard on myself all the time? But I found it so comforting to find out that there is some evolutionary basis in it and that you know, I'm not broken. And that, you know, because we we live in this world of we're either okay or we're broken. And that we're not broken. You are definitely not broken. And 
I, I actually, it was one of the interesting things when I became a clinical psychologist and I started working with a lot of different people from all walks of life. I worked at the cancer center with women with breast cancer. I worked with stressed out college students. I worked with high level executives. And what struck me most, and it's exactly what you're saying, Sarah, is that everyone was talking about the same thing. They're all talking about this tremendous self-judgment and shame, the sense of I'm not good enough. And so I think that feeling that you've had is actually universal, that there's, you're not broken. It's actually something broken in the system that needs to be healed, where we are constantly judging ourselves. And oftentimes, it's like you said, it's because you want to do things better. You want to be perfect. You want to do things right. And it's not actually wrong to want to improve or want to correct mistakes, but going about it by shaming and judging ourselves simply doesn't work. I mean, just from a physiological standpoint, when we judge and shame ourselves, we actually inhibit the brain from learning. We shuttle all of our resources to survival pathways instead of learning centers. And so it simply doesn't work. Yeah, and I want to talk more about shame in a little bit. Let me ask you this. So are we all, are we, because there's nature and nurture, right? So we come out of the wound, womb wired. So I got that. But what about the other side? And I've been reading a book about um, uh, uh, um, healing the child within is the book that I've been reading. So it's mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the impact of trauma in childhood, whether it's broken homes, whether it's um, alcohol, drugs, whatever kind of abuse, whatever kind of pains they've had. So help me understand so the physical i get that we're wired for for this negativity and survival which i love thank you um but what about nature on it right so that is it then that you know by the time i'm now 59 years old i've had 59 years of pile on of messaging from parents teachers friends society bosses etc that plays into that exactly so This is a wonderful question. So first of all, nature versus nurture. There is no nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture that we know very clearly now, I mean, especially with the field of epigenetics, that we we have nature and then our genes can develop based on our environment. And so we are constantly changing. And what I believe is so hopeful and what I you know, why, why I love science so much is that epigenetics, neuroplasticity, these kind of newer fields have shown us that we're constantly changing, that we're not fixed, that even at 59 years old, you can actually carve out pathways of greater joy, of greater positivity, of greater ease, of less perfectionism. And so what I find so powerful in these practices is that science has shown that what we practice grows stronger and we can actually shift all the all the conditioning by stepping into the present moment and seeing things clearly and that's really what mindfulness does you know the word mindfulness means to see clearly so all we're trying to do is start to strip away that conditioning strip away all the judgments strip away all the biases and assumptions and actually meet the present moment and it takes some training. It, it's like going to the gym and lifting weights. You're, you're strengthening your capacity to be present in this kind, open, curious way instead of going through life on automatic pilot, kind of deepening those pathways of negativity and judgment that you've been practicing for so many years. And how do you get people to realize the rut that they're, that they're in? You mentioned before how shame... Um, and again, which was a really big factor in this, the, I'll call it the impact, emotional impact on children in these homes, that shame mm-hmm. shuts you down. And it shuts yeah. down your ability to learn. And it literally freezes you, my word now. Um, yeah. So how do you get someone to even be aware that mm-hmm. they're that unhappy and that life can change and that they, can, they there is another world out there if all they've ever known is this land of you know, I'm not good enough. It's a great, yes. So as a clinical psychologist, as a professor, that's one of the things that I'm most focused on is how do you help people change? How do you help them shift their perspective, shift their paradigm? And the first step is for them to actually believe there is another way, to actually believe something else is possible. So what you just said is 
is to actually show them that possibility. And for me, I often will begin with the science because that I've seen helps people feel safer and helps them kind of believe in this. And so, for example, one of, one of the studies that I share often is the fact that in psychology there's something called a happiness set point. And that basically by the time after early childhood, based on your nature and your nurture, you develop a baseline of happiness. And what they've shown is that that doesn't change much throughout your life. So right now this is not good news. This is not the part that's making me hopeful. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> oh, great. So I'm now forever Sorry. doomed yeah, right. to a 4.2. <laughs> okay, but, but hold on because I'm, I'm going somewhere. So, and what they've shown, they've, you know, they've replicated this over and over again with people who win the lottery. They have this huge blip of happiness. And then one year later, they go right back to their baseline. Even more shocking, people who are in a terrible accident, they become paralyzed for life. They have this blip, like this, this drop of happiness. And then one year later, they are also back to their baseline. Now, this is very surprising, but what it shows us is that our external circumstances don't change our happiness levels. That no matter how big your wins, how big your success is, you're not actually gonna change your happiness. What is so hopeful about the new research is what it's showing is that even though external changes don't change our happiness, internal changes can. Happiness can be trained because the very structure of the brain can be modified. And so what we're learning is that practices such as meditation, such as training the mind, can actually grow areas of the brain that have to do with happiness, that have to do with compassion, that have to do with self-compassion that have to do with emotion regulation. So you can actually restructure your brain. We have the power to re-architect our brain at any moment. And that's what I tell people. I say, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what your past, no matter what your current situation, it is never too late to begin again. Can you give me like a juicy example, a story of someone that rewired their brain? Uh, I have many. Um, the, the one that, that struck me the most because it was such a radical shift um, was actually one of my first patients when I was working at a veterans hospital. And I was working with a group of men who had post-traumatic stress disorder. And there was one man in the group who never said a word, never looked up even. And about two months passed. and. At one point, he raised his hand, and we all kind of looked up surprised, and he said something I'd never heard before. He said, I don't want to get better. I don't deserve to get better. What I saw in the war, what I did, I don't deserve to get better. And then he told us in great detail what he had seen and, and worse, what he had done. And you could feel his shame. I mean, it was palpable in the room. And what was so extraordinary was as he lifted his gaze to look around at the other men in the group, there was no judgment on their faces. There was only compassion and understanding. And everyone in the room knew what he had done was wrong. It wasn't that we were just pretending. There was this right. recognition that he wasn't his past behaviors, that he could begin again. And something in him really began to thaw that day. You could see it happen. And as he continued to practice, and we were learning about mindfulness and how to welcome with acceptance and kindness even the dark, messy parts of ourselves, he really began to change. And after about six months, he decided that he wanted to start volunteering to help veterans and to support people in in beginning again, that he recognized that this fight within himself wasn't solving anything. And it, it was really, it was like a light switch, you know? I yeah. mean, you usually don't see it that radically, but it was it was extraordinary. And I've seen that in many, many patients, and truthfully in myself, where there's this, this shift where all of a sudden, and it can be in small ways. You know, the other day I was, I was walking and I bumped right into the corner of a table and it was so sharp and it hurt so much. It was right into my thigh. I hate when that and, happens. I know. And instead of saying, you idiot, you moron, why, you huh. know, you're so clumsy, I, I rubbed my little thigh and I was like, oh, sweetheart, that hurt. 
And then I was like, wow, that was so nice. That was so loving of you. Right. (laughs) And so it's these little, little pathways that start shifting where you start actually being on your own team, which is radical to be your own ally. So fast forward this man, because there's the aha moment. And this goes on, you know, I've, I've talked to doctors about, you know, cardiac patients or people that don't take care of themselves. And it's not until they're in the emergency room with a heart attack, they suddenly say, oh, maybe those cheeseburgers aren't such a good idea. So this man, something brought him in to the group. He had this aha Mm -hmm. moment. So what was he like six months later when he's practiced all this? I'm, I'm trying to get back to the kind of the neuroplasticity and the ability that he could actually shift his right. attitude, his demeanor, well, like, did he get lighter? Me, did he come in smiling? Did he? Well, let me tell you a, another story because I have a much longer follow-up with that because that this patient I was doing my internship, so I didn't have as long a follow-up. But a woman I started working with who um, I actually wrote about her in my book because she was so remarkable and I continued to work with her, but her husband died um, and it was devastating for her. And she was um, 70 years old and she, had, she was from Iran and she had never really been out in the world by herself. And all of a sudden she had to face the world. And so we started practicing mindfulness and you know, slowly she started kind of opening to the world and being more curious instead of afraid. And you know, she took her first trip by herself and then she started taking poetry classes and a dance class. And, here we are, we're, we're seven years later, and she travels all over the world by herself. She, she actually got breast cancer, and she fought it and survived, and now she volunteers at the cancer center. She teaches mindfulness, and she is the most joyful, bright, loving human being, and she tells me all the time, her grandchildren and her children tell her they, she's like a different human being. They, to see the changes over the years from this frightened, timid woman who was afraid of experiencing any kind of novelty or joy to this woman who's, you know, taking dance classes and, right. you know, late in her 70s. And, and she practices every day. As if you've never seen someone so committed to, to these practices. Yeah, see, that's what, that, that's what I wanted to paint a picture of. Because, again, back to my open, there's so much kind of gray inertia. But there's a whole other world that we can tap into. Through, through what you're learning and through what you're writing in the book. So Absolutely, and, and it takes practice, and that's what I tell people. And yet, even small changes, even 2%, 5%, have huge impact. And that's what I find so remarkable. I, similar to you, have had a history of perfectionism, and there was this sense of you have to do it kind of all or none, and you have to do it perfectly. And one of my hugest breakthroughs was this understanding of what I call the 5% principle. That you just need to do 5% more. Like, can I relax 5% more? Or can I do 5% more exercise? Or be 5% more curious and open-minded? And what you start to see is it, these subtle shifts are significant. And, and B, that what they do is they allow you to begin. But so often, I think perfectionism causes us to just procrastinate because we're like, oh, I have to do it perfectly or I'm not going to do it at all. Yeah, I hear perfectionists can't make decisions either. Exactly. Because, well, what it's actually called is um, there's a Harvard study by Barry Schwartz and he compares maximizers versus satisficers. And maximizers are the perfectionists. And they are always trying to kind of get the optimal, perfect choice. And so they're never really satisfied. And what his research shows is that it's a very unhealthy and ineffective way to live. And that satisficers, as he calls them, um, they have values. But once they meet their values, they don't keep trying to find the perfect thing. It's good enough. And um, what, what we find is that it's so important for people to trust that good enough is okay, that just beginning is that's perfect in itself and so i have this phrase i say it's it's practice not perfect right our goal isn't perfect i mean perfection is the antithesis of evolution right if if you're perfect you're done and right you're done learning right i i say every time i make a mistake what a perfect human i am (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. And what you find actually is people who are more mindful and more self-compassionate, they have a very different view of mistakes. Mistakes are not failures. Mistakes are just learning opportunities. You right. know, Benjamin Franklin said, I've learned a thousand ways that haven't worked. But yes, they're just exactly. So let's, all right, so let's go to this mindfulness thing, because a lot of people have a perception of mindfulness is, you know, chewing a raisin for 15 minutes and experiencing (laughs) every crumb in your teeth, or as I say, Eckhart Tolle sitting on a park bench. Oh, but if I could spend my life sitting on a park bench and just being there. Um, But your mindfulness is not that. I would say it's broader than that. I right. think there's a very limited understanding of mindfulness, and as it's gained in popularity, unfortunately, our depth of understanding has has gotten less. So mindfulness, a lot of people think mindfulness is just about paying attention. Um, but if it was just about paying attention, then a sniper could be the most mindful person in the world, right? It's not just about focusing your attention. It's about why are you paying attention? which I call your intention, what you value, what you care about. And more importantly than anything, I believe, how you pay attention. Paying attention with an attitude of kindness, of curiosity. And so I've created this model of mindfulness that includes all three elements, your intention, your attention, and your attitude. And when we approach life with this, I feel like it's this kind of secret sauce or the kind of Jedi moves that allow us to meet the present moment, to see it clearly and respond effectively with wisdom and compassion. All right. So let's go through each of those pieces and so go into more detail. So intention is. So intention is simply knowing why am I paying attention? What do I care about? Because if you think about it, people often say that time is our most valuable resource. They're wrong. It's our attention. We're bombarded with so many different things. Where do I put my attention? And so mindfulness helps you get crystal clear on what is most important. Where do I want to focus my attention? That's your, that's your intention. That's why it kind of, I like to say it, it sets the compass of your heart in the direction you want to head. So it's my, what I care most about. So in my daily activities, um, is it the broader? So I had something years ago. I had a coach working with me. And she helped me realize, you know, I'd have the fight every night about my daughter practicing piano. She had to practice piano. And my bigger picture intention was that we should have a great relationship and that she should have a love for music. And versus practicing piano, which was some small, weird attachment to yes. a thing. Beautiful. Right? So exactly. And I, what I find is most people, they don't spend a lot of time thinking about their big picture intentions. And so what I do is each morning I set my intention for the day, but there's also times in my life where I really kind of big picture it and spend some time journaling um, about what my vision is and what my intention is. And I want to make really clear, intention is not a goal. It's not a destination. It's a direction. It's like, this is the, this is what I care most about. And I'll give you an example um, from, from my parenting. So I was, some years ago when my son was about nine, I was away teaching in Europe and I was gone for two weeks. And it was the longest we'd ever been apart. And as I was flying home, I remember distinctly flying home from Copenhagen, squished in the coach class in the middle seat. And I started getting really anxious. Like I've been away too long. I've ruined our attachment bond. I'm a terrible mother. And instead of spiraling into shame, which I know doesn't work, I set an intention. When I get home, For the first 24 hours, I'm just going to reconnect with my son. I'm just going to let him know, mom is home, you're safe, I love you. So I got home, I didn't unpack, I didn't check mail or email, and I said, hey, do you want to go to the beach, which we both love doing? And he said, sure. So I start packing up the perfect picnic and all his beach gear, and I'm out waving at the neighbors, like, see, I'm home, see what a good mom I am? You know it's not going to end well. (laughs) Yeah. So I go back inside and say, hey, Jackson, you ready to go? And he's like, now nah, I don't feel like it. And I'm like, what? We're going to go to the beach, and I'm going to show you how much I love you. Damn it. I'm, I'm going to be the best mother returning home, taking you to the beach. Exactly. I'm going to be the triumphant mom showing how much I love you. So he kind of gets on his swimsuit, and we're walking out the door, and I'm already at the car, kind of in my agenda mode. Like, I want to get to the beach in time for the perfect sunlight and the picnic. And he's sitting on our front porch. 
And I say, hey, Jackson, let's go. And he doesn't even look up. And I start getting impatient and frustrated. And then luckily, I remembered my intention. What was the most important thing? I just want to reconnect with my son. And so I walk over to where he's sitting, and I sit down next to him. We're sitting there for a few moments. He's watching these ants, which, which are kind of amazing. <laughs> and we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, his little body begins to soften. And he leans his shoulder into my shoulder, and I feel the sun on our back. And that was it. That was the most important thing. But we forget so quickly. Right. So the first part of mindfulness is just remembering your intention. Why are you paying attention? What's important? So now people... Let's stay on attention for a second, because for the people that now are back to the very basic bottom of this, which is kind of unhappy and living in the negativity bias and the shame and all that sort of stuff, I'm trying to to help support them and help them find. So where do they start in an intention from that? Is it, again, just becoming aware of, I really don't want to be this way. I'd like to be happy. I'd like to feel joy. Like, how does, how does that person start? Exactly. So what I typically have people I'm working with do is we begin with our intention. And the practice, it's actually the very first practice that I have in my new book, is to really take some time to listen deeply. And not listen just with your mind where it's like, oh, I should be doing this or I should be happy or I should. But to really listen with your body and to feel what what do I care most about? What is most important? Maybe it's greater ease in my life or greater clarity or greater joy. And what I typically find is as you're listening for your intention, when you land on it, it feels good. It feels right. It's like, oh, yes, that's what I want. I want to connect with my son or I want to feel more joy or I want. And so it's this kind of aspirational an inspirational feeling. It feels kind of peaceful and yet motivational. Can they start and, with a place of pain and then reverse it, flip it? Like so see the places where they don't feel yeah. so good or confident? Of course. So the first thing that people might notice as they kind of listen is I'm, I'm suffering right now. And so then you can say, what would help heal this? Oh, I'm so confused. I can't decide if I should leave my marriage or not ah, what my intention is is for greater clarity. Or I'm I'm, I'm judging myself so much and I'm in so much self-criticism and self-doubt. Ah, my intention is for more compassion. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm pushing on the detail because I think a lot of people just don't know where to start, especially if they're in pain. Exactly, and I'm really glad you asked that question because what I find when I first ask people this is that's where they go, is what's wrong with me and what do I need to fix? And so, again, that's why this practice is so nuanced, is you have to really set the container of this kind, non-judgmental, can I see my life clearly, and set an intention from that place without spiraling down into, oh, God, I'm I'm miserable, and I'm always going to be miserable, and there's something wrong with me. Right. It's like, I'm miserable and suffering, and my intention is to cultivate greater joy and greater faith that I can move through this. And to know that there is a way out, that they can, that, again... There's a way through mindfulness and your practices to be able to work their way through it, but there's a reason that there's this underlying scientific basis that they're not broken. That's Absolutely. <laughs> that they were kind of pre-primed yes. to be this, Absolutely. and then life has has reinforced it. Exactly, and that's why I feel I felt so compelled to get my PhD and become a professor and and study the science of this is because. Just as a meditation teacher, I didn't feel like I could give people the kind of faith and motivation they needed to begin again. Right. All right. So now we can go on. We had intention, and now never turn. Now I'm ready to move along uh, (laughs) to attention. Yes, it's our attention. And people who are listening may have noticed that it's kind of hard to sustain attention. You may have noticed that at some point your mind wandered, even as compelling as we are. And so what we found is that research from Harvard shows the mind wanders on average 47% of the time. So that's about half of our waking life that we're completely spaced out, that we're missing. So part of mindfulness is learning how to train and stabilize our attention 
in the present moment so we can actually see clearly, right? So if I'm reading a book, I actually read the paragraph I'm reading instead of spacing out. If I'm talking to my child or talking to my boss, that I'm focused and present. So so much of our time is spent lost in the future, right? What am I going to do when this happens? How will I handle this? Or we get stuck in the past. I wish I had done that or only I had done this. And what happens is we miss the present moment, which is really the only time we have to make changes, to learn, to grow, to actually appreciate this life. Well, and even that, don't we need to retrain our brains because in this high-tech, fast-paced world, there are so many messages coming at us so fast. And I'm trying to make a conscious effort to increase my attention that my attention span has really shortened over the last bunch of years Yeah, with all the juggling. You can see that in the millennials compared to, I mean, our, our, the, the, the young children, their attention span is much different than it, than it used to be. And the good news is that you can train it. And what we're finding, I mean, if you look at the research on multitasking, it's, it's abysmal. Multitasking is so bad for you, and yet people pride themselves on it. People, you know, in job interviews, they, they right. ask, are you a good multitasker? You need to do this. And yet what the research shows is you make twice as many mistakes, it takes three times as long, and you release cortisol into the body, the stress hormone that makes you sick. Yes. It, it's not good for you in any way. And, so, and yet culturally, we've, we've kind of, we've, you know, condoned these behaviors that are unhealthy. And so I think, just like you said, we need to start retraining ourselves. We need to look at our devices and how are we using them? Are we reactive or are we proactive? And I think it's definitely possible. In fact, in eight weeks, you can see changes in the brain, in the attentional centers. It's not like it takes five years, it takes eight weeks. Well, and you have something, what's the 22nd rule? Does that apply here? The twenty-second rule, mm-hmm. where it takes it takes twenty seconds to overcome um, oh. negativity bias. I think it was in your book. <laughs> I thought so, I pulled so it out of your book. The, what the twenty-second is twenty to thirty seconds to encode something into your long-term memory. So what happens is when we experience kind of positive moments or something that we want to remember. What, what typically happens is we move on so quickly that it doesn't get encoded into our long-term memory. And so what we need to do is actually pause with a pleasant experience or with something we want to remember. So for example, if you're listening right now and you're like, I really want to remember that part about intention and really softening my body and bringing compassion to whatever's here. You actually have to pause for 20 seconds and hold that in your mind to then encode it into your long-term memory. And if you think about it, what we encode in our long-term memory becomes part of our chemical soup, right? If, if we're just a bundle of negative traumatic memories, that's impacting our very physiology on a moment-to-moment basis. And so it's actually very healing and beneficial to encode positive, um, beautiful, insightful moments into the long-term memory. Yeah. In fact, I'll often tell tell my kids, but one daughter in particular, to pause for a moment because she's so self-critical. So when she gets positive mm-hmm. feedback, to just say, can you please take a moment and sit with that and be sure that you take that piece in? Um, because, That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. And to then, so we have to help our children pause and ourselves and take in the good. And then we also have to protect them when they're being self-critical. You know, I say to people, it's like, reaching out for a hot coal that is going to burn you. And so if I saw my son reaching for this judgmental thought, I would say, no, that's going to hurt you. And we have to also do that with ourselves, protect ourselves. And that's really where the third element of mindfulness comes in, which is our attitude, that we need to learn how to pay attention with kindness and curiosity, not judgment and shame. And this is a radical new approach. And for me, this has been the most challenging is to watch those internal voices and not buy into them, to not believe them. To say, thank you for your opinion, but I'm not going to go down that road. So tell me, so give an example again. What is that kindness 
feel like you talked a little bit about like when you bumped your leg before because again there's the the caricature the cartooniness of oh Sarah you did such a good job but that's not what you mean no it's it's really like if you can imagine um, the most loving welcoming parents or grandparents you know kind of your ideal parents where they welcome everything and you bring them your scraped knee and you bring them your successes and you bring them your your failures, and they say, oh, sweetheart, tell me about it. I want to know. And that's what we learn how to do with ourselves, where there's this loving awareness that welcomes our thoughts, our pain, our emotions, our shame, and we're able to meet it with kindness. And when we meet it with kindness, it actually shifts our entire physiology, and it actually turns on our capacity for learning. When, when we meet something with kindness and curiosity, we release dopamine, which turns on our motivation centers. We are actually open. We're not going into survival, fight or flight mode. And so this response, besides feeling better, is actually incredibly powerful. And in fact, this is what the research shows, that people who are trying to lose weight or trying to exercise more, that are self-compassionate or practice self-compassion are more successful. And it's almost counterintuitive because a lot of people, when I tell them to be kind or to be compassionate, they're like, no, I'll lose my edge or I'll lose my motivation or I'll become a couch potato. But the science shows the exact opposite is true. When we're kind, we're better able to change. Well, and I think, I think it was you and I that had talked about this, that this isn't a free pass on not being responsible, right? That Absolutely not, no. In fact, what I find is, in fact, there was a study at UC Berkeley, I know I cited it in my book, that showed that people who were um, encouraged to practice self-compassion and then reflect on a mistake they'd made or something they'd done wrong were much more likely to repair that mistake, to take responsibility, to ask for forgiveness than people who were not encouraged to be compassionate. And so what it does is it actually gives us the courage to face our, our mistakes and, and our shadow sides and to really try to make amends and to heal them. Right, versus just passing it off. Now, let me ask you this though. So focusing on the kindness and the compassion, which I love and I can, I can feel the shift. I've been, I've been practicing every day. I'm telling, you know, giving myself my, my messages and I can totally feel the difference and feel the shift. What it's not doing is, I'll call it erasing the past issues, right? If you had real fears or real mistakes or whatever those real kind of um, mm-hmm. concerns mm-hmm. are, it's not changing that. So it's not, I'll, I don't know if fixing is the right word, but you know what I mean? Is it just, are we slowly yeah. replacing the weeds with no. the healthy grass? No, it's actually, what we're doing is twofold. One is we're strengthening these pathways of kindness and compassion. And once they get strong enough, we can actually meet the pain from our past. We can meet what was there and we do it in a very different way. So for example, a lot of times when I'm working with someone, let's say who's dealing with a lot of depression or anxiety, and I explain to them about neuroplasticity and I explain to them what you practice grows stronger, they start to panic because they're like, oh my God, well, I just have to stop these depressive thoughts or stop this anxiety because I don't want it to grow bigger. And what I explain to them is that when you bring this kindness, this resonance of kindness and mindfulness to the depression, to the anxiety, it's actually a completely different pathway. That you're not kind of unconsciously in a fear-based way feeling depressed. You're welcoming the depression. You're saying, oh, sweetheart, you're really afraid right now or you're really lonely right now. And you're holding that in your awareness. And that is a different neural pathway, and it starts to heal it. And what it does is it starts to prune the pathway that you've practiced for so long of being unconsciously in the grips of anxiety. And so every time we practice a different pathway, you're also pruning your automatic reaction. I call them superhighways of habit and country roads of compassion. And so every time we start to go down that country road, which in the beginning takes a bit longer, it's a little more challenging, it starts to grow, and every time we do that, we're pruning the superhighway, which eventually gets covered over and we no longer use. Yeah, I'm, my brain was thinking about, like, can someone really do all this on their own? Like, you can start on it, but do they need Ooh. 
a, a group? Do they need a counselor? Like, it'll... Yeah, it's a great question. So what I've tried to do in my book and is take the 20 years of clinical experience and scientific study and personal meditation practice and create both story and science and practice to really help people walk through these practices in a way that I believe is an incredible start. And I've tried to point out the pitfalls and the nuances, just like I'm doing in our conversation, where it says, look, this is what you want to be watching out for. When you set your intention, don't start criticizing yourself for, for what you're trying to solve. Does that make sense? Yeah, so totally. Totally. And in fact, now I want to talk about you've got seven practices that actually help shift this negative and help kind of prime the pump on the positive attitude. And the first one was one of my favorite things to do in the world. I've talked about this before. You call it the smiling meditation. I call it just smiling. (laughs) (laughs) When you just smile, your whole physiology changes. Exactly. It sends a signal to your nervous system that you're safe, that it's okay. And if you practice, I mean, for those of you listening, try just letting there be a gentle smile on your mouth. It, it really starts to shift how we feel. And for me, I even like to practice feeling that smile kind of move up into my eyes and feel the eyes crinkling upwards. And what I want to be clear about is the smile is not covering over how we feel. It's not faking it. What it's doing is it's creating the environment of safety so that we can welcome whatever's here. Yeah, I've actually heard that even if you're having a hard time just doing it naturally, if you even just stick a pen in your mouth or a pencil, like just they actually did a study on that. Yes, (laughs) they did a research study, and people who held pencils in their mouths, which made their mouth turn upwards, reported being happier even an hour later. Yeah, like you can, I, I so clearly can feel those endorphins shift through my body. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive or run around without endorphins far too often, so that every little bit helps. Um, how about gratitude? Gratitude is another very powerful practice. It has been shown in literally hundreds of research studies to impact our immune system, to change our physiology, to make you happier, more satisfied. And there's many ways to practice gratitude. I love doing a gratitude journal at the end of the day before bed. A lot of my clients ask me, you know, they're working on getting off their social media right before bed because it's really not healthy for us to be on our devices, as as they've shown. And they say, well, what should I do in between the time I put my phone down and the time I go to bed? And the gratitude journal is such a wonderful thing to have a beautiful journal by your bed and just jot down things you're grateful for. And what it does is it really prepares the body for sleep in this beautiful way. Because the state of your mind right before sleep is going to impact the quality of your sleep through the rest of the night. And so it's really helpful to be focusing on what you're grateful for at that time. Is it okay if your gratitude journal, you're grateful for the same things every day? I've gone through stages where I've done gratitude journals, and they're like, I'm writing the same thing every day. And then I think, but it should be different. I, I should be great. You know, there should be this richness of the gratitude experience. When I read other people's gratitude journals, there's all these amazing gratitude puts inputs in them. What I love, Sarah, is you can see your perfectionism sneaking out right <laughs> here in the gratitude journal. Am I doing it right? right. Is it good enough? Well, like, no, but it got tedious to me. Like, okay, every day I'm grateful for my amazing husband, my beautiful kids, my lovely house, my job. Like, it was, the, like, it was like, okay, been there, done that. Right. So here's the key. It's not so much if you're thinking of different things or how many things you think of. The key is actually to pause and feel it and to bring as much sensory awareness to it as you can. So when I say I'm grateful for my son's laughter, to pause and actually have this image of when he's laughing and to let that, you know, I can feel it right now in my body as I'm imagining it and to let that impact me. Or if I imagine I'm grateful for sunshine, and then I imagine the last time I felt sun on my face, and I really take it in, that there's a way you can begin to deepen the impact of these practices, as opposed to making it one more thing on your to-do list. Right. Well, and I love the fact, again, so, so this was a perfect example, where there are elements that we literally take for granted. Being grateful for sunshine, like whoever thinks about that, unless they've been, you know, it's been 40 days and 40 nights of rain. But, like, those subtle things. I love watching my kids ski because I'm so like just moves me to see them being able Mm. to be that free 
And I, whenever we go, I'm like I watch them go down the mountain because I just love that. Um, Beautiful. And yeah. so you can call that to mind in the evening. I mean, sometimes I'm just grateful for getting into bed. I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God, it's just so good. I'm oh, so yes. happy I made it. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. All right. What else are some of the uh, seven practices? Seven practices to cultivate greater happiness. Another practice that I think is incredibly powerful is a practice that's called mudita, which means taking joy in someone else's joy. And you described it a little bit just now when you were imagining your children skiing and just feeling the joy and the pride in them. But oftentimes when good things happen to other people, like our colleague or a friend, we can feel jealousy instead of, instead of joy. And so one of the most powerful practices I've learned is to really recognize that happiness is not a limited commodity, that, that it's not if someone else has it, you can't have it, and to really work on cultivating this neural pathway of joy, of, of actually receiving joy when you see someone else happy. And it has been such a beautiful practice that when I see one of my friends experience something, it's, it's like my own joy. And so one of the times I was using this practice, I was working with a patient who had recently gotten divorced, was going through a very, very difficult time. And she said every time she saw happy couples out in the world, she would feel jealous and then she would feel shame at her jealousy. Mm. Wow, double so, whammy. Right. Yeah. And so we began practicing to wish those couples well and then wish for her own, may I find that love in my life kind of use it as this beacon of hope and to really take joy in their love and to then wish it for herself. And it was this beautiful practice where after a few months, every time she saw someone holding hands or truly delighting each other, she was like, see, it's possible. And she would wish them well, this kind of, and, and, and wish that it came into her own life. And so what these practices do is they help you meet whatever situation you're dealing with, with courage and grace. Yeah, no, I love that. And there are a few other practices in the book, but I want to, so we're running out of time. I don't want to keep, keep you too long. Um, I want to go back for a second on, um, to the very beginning, actually, where helping people, we talked about helping people identify for themselves and see their unha- you know, how, that they might even have an issue. How do you, if there's someone in your life that you see who has, who's kind of stuck in their negativity, has their negativity bias, um, lives in shame, see this in somebody, how do you help them see it? How can you help someone else? Right, so it's a great question, and I believe that everyone needs to come to these teachings on their own, that you can't force someone Mm -hmm. and so the best way to help people is to really model and embody it and to show how it shifted you by really living it and to not shame people for where they are i really believe we have to meet people where they are even even if it's not where we want them to be and even if we see a solution that maybe they don't see it's about having faith in them. And I, you know, I train therapists. That's what I do as a professor. And I always begin our first class by saying, you need to have faith in your patient. You can't jump in and try to save them and try to solve it. It's about helping them see themselves clearly, helping them see their own goodness and trust their own good heart, helping them access the wisdom that's already there. Yeah, I love that. All right. Will you share your good morning, I love you exercise? (laughs) I will share it. Um, This was an exercise I learned many years ago, and it has become the most powerful transformational practice I've done. And it's so simple, um, which is really what inspired me to write this book and to share it with people. Many years ago, when I was going through a difficult divorce, I was... It was a very challenging time, especially because we had a young son, and I was feeling so much fear and also tremendous shame that I hadn't been able to make the marriage work. And I would wake up every day with this pit of shame and despair and judgment. And my meditation teacher suggested I start a practice of compassion, and she said, I want you to start saying, I love you, Shauna, every day. And I was like, no way. 
it just felt so inauthentic and woo-woo and, you know, I'm a scientist. It didn't feel, it didn't feel like something I could do. And she saw my hesitation. She said, how about just saying good morning when you wake up? Good morning, Shauna. And she said, try putting your hand on your heart when you say it. It releases oxytocin. It's good for you, you know. She knew the science would win me over. So the next morning I woke up, took a breath, put my hand on my heart and said, good morning, Shauna. And it was kind of nice. Right? Instead of the judgments and fears and future thinking, I just greeted myself in the present moment with kindness. And I continued to practice, and I practiced for days and weeks and months. And a few months later, it was my birthday, and it was my first birthday ever away from my son or my husband. Um, they had had a family reunion to go to, and since we were separated, we, I wasn't going. And so I went to a place called Esalen in Big Sur, and I was all alone, and I remember waking up, and there's these beautiful mineral hot springs overlooking the ocean there, and I crawled out of bed before sunrise, and I ran down to the hot springs, and I slipped in, and I put my hand on my heart, and I said, good morning, Shauna, and before I knew it, I was saying, good morning, I love you, happy birthday, oh. and it was as if the dam around my heart burst. It was, I could feel my grandmother's love, I could feel my mother's love, I could feel my own self-love, something I don't know if I've ever felt before. And I've continued to practice every day, and some days it's easier than others. Some days I feel awkward, and some days it feels really raw and vulnerable, but some days I feel this tremendous love. And so I began teaching it to my students and my family and friends and anyone that would listen. And the ripple effect of this practice has been so surprising and extraordinary. You know, I shared it in my TEDx talk, so now more than a million and a half people have learned this practice. And I receive letters weekly from people sharing their stories of how it impacted them, or, you know, children saying, good morning, I love you, little videos of them saying it to themselves. And what I find is that this practice kind of brings together all the other teachings in a very simple way because it brings us into the present moment with kindness, with openness, and it allows us to begin our day with this, with this grace and this ease as opposed to fear and shame. So I invite all of you to try it. Um, and even if it's just 2%, even if it's just noticing how it feels to put your hand on your heart, right? even just that gesture of self-kindness, is powerful. I love it. Thank you very much. Dr. Shauna Shapiro, you're awesome. Your website, drshaunashapiro.com, and your book is amazing. Good morning. I love you. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Sarah. I'm talking to clinical psychologist and author, Dr. Shauna Shapiro, about how to overcome our inherent vulnerability to negative self-talk and the damage that it creates for us both professionally and personally. The good news is that this negativity bias can actually be overcome using a simple mindfulness practice that rewires our brains by shifting focus to behaviors and experiences that elicit feel-good reactions in our bodies. It sounds too good to be true and way too many words to describe, but it really works and science has proven it. Sean is just one example of the thousands of experts who appear regularly in our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal which is filled with information from America's leading experts on not just how to change your mindset or life path, but on detailed aspects of your life, including travel, the best insurance coverage, living healthier, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.